I'm Sam Jima, host of the Geopolitics of Business, the show where we explore what happens when business and politics collide and how leaders respond. This week, we look at the opportunities in rising states, those countries that are benefiting from the geopolitical rivalry between China and the US. Three years ago, every CEO wanted to show, like, you know, what's the China strategy? And then in the last two or three years, you've seen this huge shift where everyone's trying to figure out how do we diversify out of China. That's Rushia Sharma, New York Times bestselling author, Financial Times columnist, and chairman of investment firm Rockefeller International. With over 25 years living and breathing emerging markets, Rushia is the perfect person to discuss those countries that stand to benefit from deglobalization, decoupling, and the changing geopolitical landscape. In this episode on rising states, we cover navigating risk and opportunity in emerging markets, the repricing of money, rising political risk in the global north, and the bumper year of elections ahead. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Let's start with your your journey into the world of business, because it is one that spans many countries, but primarily India. So I'd like to know how you got interested in finance and economics, having started, if I understand it correctly, as a writer. Um. My start was a bit interesting in this way, which is that I've never been a full-time writer. What happened was that at a young age, I was fortunate enough to be very focused on what I wanted to do. My father was in the Indian Navy, and then he was a diplomat uh, for a few years in Singapore. Uh, He was posted there. That was when I was in the eighth and ninth grade. And I got a real curiosity about foreign affairs and global affairs really starting back then. So, And then when I moved back to India, I wanted to keep that line of thinking going. So what happened was that after I finished 12th grade, I started to write for one of India's leading economic newspapers. And at that point in time, it was 1991, there were very few people in India who were really covering what was happening outside of India. India was still a relatively closed economy. It was just about opening up and liberalizing. Uh, And so at that age, there was nobody who would give me money to manage. Uh, So the next best thing to do was to write about macroeconomics. So even though eventually I always wanted to become an investor, so I started to write on global macroeconomics because that was the best way for me to come out to the world and do something I was passionate about. And in 1996, those columns really, in a way, helped me get into Morgan Stanley because I was all set to come and do my postgraduate studies here in the U.S. That's what my aim was. When some senior executives at Morgan Stanley happened to read what I was writing and made an offer that I couldn't refuse by saying that, do you want to make money or do you want to study? Uh, So I said, I want to make money. So I joined Morgan Stanley on the investing side, and I carried on writing on the side all the time. Uh, So it's been over 30 years that I've written either a column or a book. Since your time in Wall Street, obviously, you continue to spend, I think it's a week every month in an emerging market. Can you share some stories about the real world experiences you have from these travels that you have? And I think very interesting talking to real people that and that's what influences your um, approach to invest in. Yeah. In fact, I wrote a book about this in 2016, uh, which was essentially the 10 rules of uh, successful nations, uh, which is that after having been to so many countries, spoken to so many 
people on the ground that typically when I go for a week to a country, I end up meeting the leading you know, policymakers, uh, investors, the CEOs of various companies. That's the uh, kind of spectrum that you try and cover there, apart from just staying on the, you know, like uh, just being there because there's so much about a country that you can read sitting at your desk, but it's only when you experience it. And then also it focuses the mind in a way. There are small details about a nation that there's no way I would pick up if I was just sitting here around at my desk in New York. And what happens is that you just sort of get trained a bit to thinking that when you go to these places, including like a Croatia, which may not be in, even investable, you're always thinking about what's been the development history, what's the per capita income, uh, when did these countries really start to grow, what's been their post communist uh, era experience. So it's that kind of conversation that you keep having all the time. What I really tried to do was to systematize this process, like on politics, for example. Um, one of the rules that I have is that normally for a nation, when you elect a new leader, typically the first six to 18 months of a new leader coming to power tend to be very good for that country, especially from an investing perspective and a stock market perspective. You get fresh energy, uh, especially when the country is going through a crisis. You, you know, like a new leader then has the political and the uh, broad support even to carry out big bang economic reforms, to change the direction of a country, get a maximum bang for the buck. And then I also figure out the longer a leader stays in power, the worse it is for a country. And I learned this the hard way as well sometimes. Like if you look at the likes of Putin and Erdogan. I think what many people forget is that when they first came to power uh, in the early 2000s, they were reformers, at least from an economic perspective. Their countries were had gone through a lot of turmoil uh, and they were looking to reform their countries by moving the countries towards a more free market capitalist system. And as they stayed in power for longer, that they reverted back to their statism and uh, have taken their economies in a very troubling direction. So I mapped that out. These are broad templates that I've tried to build. Given the travel you've done, the conversations you've had, what, what is it that people in the West miss when assessing emerging markets? And what are the conversations you have with people to convince them to widen their horizons when they look at um, the opportunities or not in these parts of the world? Well, I think that uh, the biggest issue is that most people speak about emerging markets as if they're one block, that these are emerging markets. But there's massive differentiation here. And their economic prospects can change both for the better and then offer the worse quite quickly. In the 2000s, we all got carried away by the emerging market boom because the BRICS were seen to conquer the world. That was the acronym of I come on to that. Yeah, yes. in terms of the fashionable acronym of that decade. And you ended up getting uh, a huge uh, spurt in economic growth across emerging markets. Every country was growing very rapidly. And uh, the BRICS obviously did uh, really well there as the largest economies of that cohort. But then the subsequent decade, as we have seen the last decade, many emerging markets have fallen by the wayside. And now the troubles have spread to China as well. So um, you've had these big cycles, but within that, there's lots of distinction. And especially now in this era, the differentiation is huge. You have India doing something very different in terms of its growth trajectory compared to, let's say, like an Argentina. Or you have like China doing something very different now 
compared to a Vietnam, which may be the new China that's emerging. Uh, so I think this differentiation is within emerging markets is something which a lot of people don't do enough, and it's very easy to club everything as one economic block. That's definitely the case. And when you speak to business leaders in the markets that you look at very closely, how are they viewing opportunity given the global order is changing in quite a fundamental way? Yeah, so I think there's a massive rethink on China, right? That's the biggest change which has happened, that three years ago, every CEO wanted to show, like, you know, what's the China strategy? And then in the last two or three years, you've seen this huge shift where everyone's trying to figure out how do we diversify out of China? How do we minimize our exposure to China? So it's this huge shift on China that's taken place. And then that's opened up a new world, which is that, okay, if not China, what should we do? Which are the countries that we can possibly establish some outsourcing that's opened up the opportunity for lots of other countries? People are much more excited now with the likes of Mexico or, of course, India and Indonesia as places, as alternatives, where they can establish some sort of a offshoring, outsourcing presence as they minimize their risk to China. Uh, they can't just all yank their exposure out of China, but it's like, okay, from now onwards, if we have to set up a new factory or a new outsourcing unit, it's got to be somewhere but China. So you see it more as de-risking from China rather than decoupling, Yeah, just that's to pick right. up on it's, that point. Because a lot of companies have just too much exposure to China. Their supply chains and or even their consumer interface is too huge in China for them to just shut shop and go home. But I think that everyone's looking to diversify. What happened in Russia that way last year really sent huge shockwaves for a lot of Western business leaders, right? Because so many were forced to write off their exposure to Russia to virtually zero, like gone. Well, businesses had to choose and the choice was try and stay in Russia, in which case business might be taken off you anyway or exit with next to nothing. Yes, but and it was even worse for investors because for investors who had any exposure to Russia, uh, because of the sanctions, it was typically written off to zero. So that was like a huge shock. So now with China, what happens is this, that even though the risk of that happening in China is low, but it's not zero. So what happens now is that a lot of businesses and investors are thinking that, okay, in Russia, we have to write it off to zero. And we could sort of justify that to our shareholders or investors by saying that it was a truly unanticipated shock. But in the very small probability that, let's say, China invades Taiwan or something, if a similar type of sanctions regime is imposed on China, where you're forced to write stuff off, it'll be much harder to justify to your investors or to your shareholders that why were you in China today? So, you know, it's this very delicate balance that people have to do, that China's a much larger, more important market than Russia. The exposure is far more significant. And yet, this risk exists. Which which explains the de-risking approach, which we, you've outlined earlier. But that also means new opportunities. So where are the new and emerging states, or should I use the phrase that you've used uh, for your books before, breakout nations, in the context of US-China rivalry post-Russia-Ukraine? Well, clearly the biggest beneficiary in the region so far has been India, uh, because it's a large market. So in terms of 
there's a lot of foreign interest that's picked up in India because of what's been happening in China. But India on the ground still remains a very difficult place to do business in. So there's only that much India can absorb. Every CEO I speak to is, you know, is trying to be India smart. India smart, yes. But, you know, like they're also figuring out how to do it and how to navigate it because, you know, there are some very good companies in India. But to actually set up greenfield projects in India is quite a challenge. You know, there's a maze of regulations, investigative authorities. There's so much you have to deal with on the ground to actually set things up in India. Then you have countries in the region, like Vietnam has been already, you know, spoken about as the next China. Not quite the size of in China or India, but it's been attracting a huge amount of foreign direct investment and has many characteristics similar to what China had 20, 30 years ago. There are other Southeast Asian countries such as Indonesia in a similar spot, uh, sort of neutral between America and China and able to artfully play that very well. Then you have countries like Mexico, which have clearly seen now a nearshoring wave. There's a lot of nearshoring happening of American companies who would rather have been in China now coming to Mexico. Uh, Once again, the wage gap with China has closed. The currency has been very competitive. And in general, that's been benefiting uh, Mexico a lot. So I'd say that these are some countries that have been clearly benefiting from the... uh, New world order, as you put it. Some of these countries are also flexing their muscles politically. I mean, it's not just trade. And trading more with each other, they can pick and choose, as you said, who they align with, uh, whether it's the US or China or be non-aligned or you could argue multi-aligned in some cases. And how how is that impacting how you look at these countries in a world where they can be multi-aligned or as someone would say, they're more like swing states, picking and choosing who to align with based on how it advances their national interests. How is that affecting the investment picture? Well, I think that these are countries that you want to invest in, uh, as simple as that. That's what I've been telling people, that these are the countries where you should be spreading your investment around rather than buying more Apple and Amazon in the US, which is what most people have done for the last decade, and quite successfully so. But now we just need to go and figure out you know, which are these other countries that could benefit uh, from this rivalry. And when America is facing its own challenges through a debt-funded growth model, and China is already paying the price for its negative demographics, deglobalization, and also being on the wrong side of the debt cycle as the property market there uh, creators. And by negative demographics, you mean sort of an aging population? And shrinking population, in fact, like in exactly in, in the case of China, yeah. Which brings me to the question, can a weaker China continue to support or invest in countries in emerging markets as it has been doing to date? No, I think that's already begun to reverse itself. I think that China is being seen by many countries as a much less reliable funding source. Uh, There's a lot of excitement about, you know, the Belt Road Initiative, also about China's increased involvement like in these countries, as they try to gain much more power. But I think what you're seeing now is something which is a bit different, which is that a lot of countries now are saying that having taken loans from China or even the Belt Road Initiative, some of this stuff really has left them with more trouble and more debt than they would have liked. So I think that that's a problem. And China itself, obviously, is much more wary because it's having to deal with all the domestic issues, like 
its foreign exchange reserves, one measure of it, are now declining. They're not going up anymore. So China doesn't have that much capital also to put out as it once did. But there, there is a real tension here that as the world de-risks from China and you, ha- you reconstruct supply chains, the benefits that we thought we had from that, those harmonized supply chains, which is much cheaper, more cost-effective, kind of you're trading that off against trying to get resilience. And it's not that easy a trade-off to achieve, is it? Yeah, you're right about that. But I think that the wage gap is still very high, which is that the wages in America and Europe are still very high compared to many emerging markets. So therefore, I think you're still seeing some form of reshoring take place. So it's not as if everyone's coming back home. Yes, in America, there's been a pickup in foreign direct investment. Some companies have come back home, but the wage gap is still quite substantial. So therefore, you're seeing more and more of these governments around the world attract all this investment that would have gone to China otherwise. And the US and European companies are still willing to do that. So you're right at the margin. It's not the most efficient allocation of capital when you have geopolitical reasons for thinking about how to allocate money. But I'd say that the world is a big enough place that it's still going on. I I was born in the UK, but I was raised in Ghana in West Africa. So I I feel I've got to ask you, um, what are the opportunities for Africa in, in this new geopolitical configuration? Unfortunately, I hate to say it, but there's really not much discussion about Africa these days. A lot of people have thought that the last time they got excited about Africa was the 2000s, when you had a commodity boom. And after that, things have just faded. So the issue with Africa, I think, like, remains one of the fact that some of the largest economies in Africa have been so poorly managed from a macroeconomic perspective. Uh, There's obviously South Africa, you know, which is going through its own crises just now. Nigeria has been an economic basket case as the second largest economy in the region out there. So I think they're trying to write that. And despite being a very big continent, it's very fragmented. Uh, The economies are relatively small. The markets are relatively small. The logistical challenges uh, of doing business between two countries within Africa is quite uh, high. So unfortunately, short of another big commodity boom where uh, people begin to discover Africa again. Currently, Africa is not really finding itself in the middle of this conversation. And commodity boom, do you see, where do you see commodities over the next 10 years? Generally higher, just because I feel that the supply is not coming on. And we've seen that already with oil and other commodities. It's so difficult now to invest in new supply, partly because the politics has changed. A lot of these things, you know, like are seen as being polluting industries, uh, and also like even in places like Latin America and stuff, starting a mine has become much more difficult. So I think that the supply is very constrained. And the irony here is that we need some of this supply even to build a new green infrastructure. You need the copper and the aluminiums to build a lot of the new green infrastructure, you know, from EVs to solar panels and stuff. You need some of the traditional commodities to do it. The only reason commodity prices are are not even higher today is because China is so weak, uh, the big consumer of commodities. But even despite a weak China, I'd say that oil uh, and oil have done relatively well in that sort of environment. So 
I'd say that the trend for these over the next five, 10 years seems higher to me uh, just because the supply is so constrained and eventually you'll have some economic growth throughout the world where demand will still remain for these commodities. Listening to you makes me wonder that if you are a global company looking at investing globally, normally these companies have five-year plans, 10-year plans. How do you think about that in a world where things are changing and changing so quickly? Do you have to have a region-by-region strategy, sector-by-sector strategy? How do companies wrestle with all of these variables as they think about where to deploy their capital? Yeah, the only thing I'd say here is that change is a constant. So this is a constant challenge. Like, you know, like in the 80s, the change was the entire collapse of the communist world. Then you had the massive rise of China, uh, starting with its accession to the WTO in 2000, 2001 or so. So change is a constant. You have to always account for that. But I think that when I look at the world, having a country-specific approach becomes even more important in this environment. And what, I mean, your thesis that you've had that um, every decade is defined by a particular investment theme and the way a decade starts is really how it ends, which I think is very, very interesting. How does that apply to the world in which we are now? So the last decade was pretty much America's decade from an economic and financial perspective. China also did well economically for a while, but it really was America's decade in terms of that the American stock market at the beginning of the 2010s was about 45% of the global stock market cap. Today, that number is 62, 63%. So it's just been, America as a financial superpower has never been this dominant. But I think that if you look at the past decadal patterns, I feel that some of this America's extraordinary financial and possibly economic strength will fade this decade. And this decade will belong to a lot of the middling powers, so to speak. We're already seeing countries like India, Indonesia, you know, some of these countries gain a lot more attention. So I feel that that's how you should be positioned for it. But that has um, huge implications, right? The rise of the middling powers and, for example, the dollar. You said the dollar is a, a wrecking ball. So do you still hold that view? But more importantly for me is how do these emerging powers, middling powers, swing states interact in a world in which the financial architecture or the global structures are ones that presume American hegemony? A lot of these countries are looking to reduce their dependence on the dollar, precisely for the reason that you mentioned, which is that the shock of seeing a country, even if it's like a country like Russia being frozen out of the financial system, was very deeply felt in these countries. So what they're trying to do now is to trade much more bilaterally in their own currencies. Uh, so we're seeing that. If you look at the foreign exchange reserve holdings, the dollar now is, uh, its share is going down very gradually. You have alternatives, whether it's a gold or you have even currencies like the Australian dollar, the Canadian dollar being held as part of FX reserves. The only thing which the US really has going for it is that China's rise as a rival has been stunted. So that's one upside for it. But I think that a lot of countries, what you're seeing is this quiet movement go on where people are trying to trade much more bilaterally, use the dollar less, hold more of their foreign exchange reserves in 
instruments such as gold. And these things happen very slowly and gradually. And then all of a sudden, you notice the big change. But I think that that change is underway. It's very interesting. I guess if we were to have this conversation with Janet Yellen, she would be talking about America's deep and liquid capital markets, rule of law, as all the issues that sort of underpin the the strength of the U.S. dollar, as well as obviously China's position. But all I true. Agree but I'm that... saying the exactly all true. But these things, you know, like you chip away when you begin to take it all for granted, and you keep, and then now you're running a budget deficit in America of more than six percent of GDP, and you expect to run that for the next few years. You have a current account deficit of four percent of GDP, and then you're willing to throw a country off the financial system. Uh, you know, like even though it may be morally justified, but when you do all of that, I think it somewhere begins to chip away at your influence and other countries start to think of inventive ways of getting off uh, the system. The discussion around emerging markets always centers around risk, political risk. But I also want to look at political risk in the developed world. And what struck me looking at some data recently is if you look at the top five riskiest places to operate in the last few years, it's changed a lot. So 2020, you'd have had Venezuela, Zimbabwe, Angola, Libya in there. 2021, India was top. And then you look at 2022, you've got China, you've got the US. But I just want to get your sense of political risk in the developed world at this time of flux and how you look at it. Because risk is not just in emerging markets when you're talking about geopolitics and the impact on business. Yeah, I think that like in the... Um strength that the advanced economies have is that the institutions are quite strong. So the hope is that the politics doesn't damage the institutions. But yeah, I think that next year it's going to be quite a sight, right, that America goes back to elections and it's going to be Trump versus Biden again as things stand. That's not a great advertisement uh, for the world's leading democracy. That's just not a great advertisement. Uh, now, is that a risk? Maybe not because the institutions are strong enough, but it's quite a telling statement. And I did this analysis at the beginning of this year that this year was one of the lightest year for elections in decades. But next year, 2024, is, is just... Is the just election never, jamboree. Exactly. It's, you know, like, and it starts off with possibly one of the most significant elections, which is in a relatively smaller nation, but in the nation of Taiwan to elect the new president. And a lot of the middling paths from Mexico to Indonesia, I think that so many countries have elections next year. So I think political analysts are going to be in great demand next year. And hopefully this podcast would help as well. Yeah. <laughs> but, but we talk about the world changing and at some point in this um, conversation, we've talked about this is the new state of affairs. And I think it was Gramsci, the Marxist philosopher, who talked about the old world is dying and the new world could yet be born. So we've talked about middling powers. We've talked about China, US. Is that what you see as the settled state of affairs for a while? Or are we going to be going through more ructions to get to a new uh, state of affairs? Yeah, I think that uh, there's a line, you know, which if I can cite here, is that history is better remembered than it is lived, which is that if you just step back and see, we're we are always going through such change. Now, in retrospect, it appears as if the times you're currently living are much harder, but we are. I still remember this conversation with the legendary investor Julian Robertson in the 1990s. And, you know, when I was a very young analyst, and I still remember this 
discussion. And he said something interesting. He said that, whereas, you know, we look back now as the early 1990s as some golden era where the fall of the Berlin Wall and the communism was, is collapsing and it's like the West has won and it appears like a great time. And he said that Margaret Thatcher told him something very interesting, which is that the Western powers then, including uh, UK, lived with this real fear that Russia, uh, then back Soviet Union, could launch a nuclear strike as a last gasp to survive. And that was a huge fear out there. So even the golden periods, which we look back as golden periods, when people were living through it, it was much more turbulent, much more fearful than we think. So I think that it is indeed a more difficult time uh, because of uh, the old order is changing. The next years could be quite uh, volatile, both politically for the reasons we discussed, economically as well, because the price of money has changed. I think that's a change we haven't like, you know, spoken about. But the, the change in the price of money and what implications that has, I think, you know, hasn't been properly understood or even fully discounted. That the fact that we have moved from a virtually zero interest rate regime to now a 5% interest rate regime. You know, like it's like a massive change on the world, on, on investing. But uh, this is always the case. And I think that we just have to accept that. When you think about the change in the price of money, which is absolutely the case, where is your focus? I think my focus is much more now on which governments, which countries are not overly reliant on borrowing which have, you know, being much more fiscally responsible in this environment. So I think that when the price of money changes, then there's a big price to be paid if you're too indebted. The premium on sound finances goes up in this point in time. And ironically, you have countries which have, like some of these emerging markets, even the likes of a Brazil, Mexico, they have negotiated this environment for years uh, because they've been much more challenged by having a higher price of money. So they're more used to dealing with this than let's say some of the Western countries like a US or even a UK, which have been so used to a, having an easy money culture. So I think that some of these countries which have been toughened by having to deal with a much more difficult financial environment may be better poised to negotiate this uh, change environment of a higher price of money. I just want to end by um, talking very quickly about leadership because on this podcast, I certainly believe that um, leadership is absolutely critical to navigating uncertain times. You have had a front seat in seeing the breadth and scope of leadership. That's not just limited to the Anglo-Saxon world. So what's your take on the kinds of qualities that a leader would need to succeed going forward? I'd say that if I were to look at the world today, I'd say that one of the most impressive leaders that I have met, uh, and unfortunately, he's retiring next year, or maybe fortunately so for, for him, after having been in office for nearly a decade, is Jokowi in Indonesia. He's less spoken about, but he's got this very good style of being mild-mannered and yet being firm in his beliefs and convictions. And his popularity rating today is incredible. I'm told that north of 80% or something. Uh, oh, and Indonesia is a titan of the global south. Yeah, you know, like in terms of that, but they tend to sort of be much more quiet about it. Uh, the, you know, like it's not a brash leadership. So at a time when you have so many strong men, so much brashness out there, here is a, a leader who is relatively unassuming and yet effective. So that combination for me 
is something which is quite impressive. Rishi Sharma, thank you for this conversation. Enjoyed it. Thanks. My thanks to New York Times bestselling author, FT columnist and investor Rishi Sharma. Next week, we welcome former U.S. House Speaker Paul Ryan, now Vice Chairman of Teneo, the global CEO advisory firm, to dive into U.S. politics. We look at the state of American democracy, what this means for America's role in the world, and what the 2024 election holds in store for business. Basically, our clients are multinational corporations, about 120 of the Fortune 500 companies. What, what they have to think about is how do I de-risk myself in a very, very complicated world, number one. Number two, how do I think like a politician? Because unfortunately, as a CEO, I have to start thinking like a politician now. That's next week on the podcast. In the meantime, do check out my LinkedIn newsletter to get your key takeaways from the podcast and contact us at info at the geopoliticsofbusiness.com. Views and opinions on the show do not necessarily represent those of foreign policy, its affiliates, or any institution the host is associated with. And as a reminder, while our program does contain broad advice that can be useful for investors, we highly recommend that individual investors consult with an independent financial advisor before making any investment decision. Thank you.